Welcome to JPAM's Closer Look podcast. I'm your host, Seth Gershenson of American University, and I'll be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on a variety of timely policy issues related to healthcare, education, environmental policy, immigration reform, economics, and more. The Journal of Policy Analysis and Management is currently hosted by the School of Public Affairs at American University, which also generously supports this podcast. American University's SPA, or School of Public Affairs, is the number 10th ranked School of Public Affairs in the nation by U.S. News, the number 4th ranked school in public management, number 8 in nonprofit management, and number 16 in both public policy and public finance and budgeting. The chief editor of JPAM is Erdal Tekin, also a professor of public policy at American University. Our guest today is Dr. Lindsay Bullinger, Assistant Professor in the School of Public Policy at Georgia Tech. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Looking forward to our conversation about your forthcoming article in JPAM. The article is entitled Infant Safe Havens. And I must admit, I actually had never heard of these until very recently when I forget where it was, but there was a viral story about a firefighter who was the first responder that rescued a baby from one of these. And it turned out that he and his wife had been trying to have children for a little while and and they ended up adopting the baby. So let's get right into it. What is an infant safe haven site? Yeah. So to be honest, I learned about these in basically the same way when I was in graduate school an infant was surrendered near my hometown, and there was a newspaper article about it. So that's actually what piqued my interest in these policies, too. Uh, So anyway, an infant safe haven is a place where an infant can be anonymously and legally surrendered without prosecution. So for example, instead of illegally abandoning an infant in an unprotected space like a dumpster or a mall, this type of legislation allows parents to bring their infants to a hospital or a fire station or a police department where someone will protect the infant and the parent will not be punished. Uh, So technically, babies are supposed to be within a certain age range, and that varies across states, and they're supposed to be in good health. But because uh, these are anonymous relinquishments, they aren't really binding requirements. From what I gathered reading your study, these safe haven sites exist in all 50 U.S. states now. How recent a phenomenon is this? Which states were early adopters? And and when was it that all states officially had these types of policies? Yeah, that's right. So all 50 states now have some legislation allowing this type of relinquishment. The first state to enact one of these policies was Texas in 1999. And then states began mimicking the policy very quickly across the country. By 2004, most states had one of these laws. And by 2010, all states had one. Uh, Since then, the mechanism for surrendering an infant has become 
uh, more modernized, if you will. Um, so for example, the technology has advanced. Uh, a lot of places now have quote unquote baby boxes, which are climate controlled boxes that kind of look like a mailbox large enough to place a baby inside. And once the door closes on these things, a 90 second timer begins allowing parents to flee and an alarm rings to alert someone to tend to the baby. Similarly, a proposed bill in Florida would allow parents to call 911 and have an EMS come pick up the baby. So these policies are also going through different renditions now, but when they were originally adopted early in the early 2000s, they were really just handing the baby over to someone um, at one of these sort of first responder sites. And the idea of anonymity and no punishment at all are, are both key to this. That's right. Yep. So these are totally anonymous. Well, they're supposed to be totally anonymous. And then no punishment is made on parents. Um, and that's in part the inspiration for these baby boxes, which allow or at least increase the likelihood that parents remain anonymous. Mm -hmm. Both for possible criminal charges, but also, I guess, the, the stigma and, you know, shame or whatever, you know, very complicated emotions parents might feel when they're doing this. I guess the, the box makes it easier than having to you know, look a paramedic in the eyes if they come to pick it up. Like you said, the, I think Florida has something like that. Lots of states now have these baby boxes in place. And so Florida's now got a bill. It, it didn't pass, but it. I think about it as an on-demand app almost where they can call 911 and have an EMS come pick up the baby. And that counts as a relinquishment if they sort of right. say, I want this baby to be relinquished or to go to a safe haven site or something. So right. um, it's changed over time, but originally, and in basically these changes didn't really happen until about a decade after the policies were already in effect. Got it. And then when we talk about states adopting these types of laws, is it the case that the state is saying that this is legal to do? Or are they somehow like requiring jurisdictions to provide this service? Or is it, is it some of both maybe? Yeah, some of both. That's right. So they're saying to parents, you can now do this okay. in an easier manner. And they're saying to fire stations and police stations and hospitals that you need to be able to receive an infant should they show up. Okay. So that's like across the board – any police station in the state has to be, you know, willing and able to accept an infant in this type of emergency situation. That's right. Um, and I don't even know if they have to be willing, right? They just, because it's a law. <laughs> um, okay. So they, they have no say in the matter. They, if a parent comes in the situation, they take the, the child. That's right. Okay. So I guess then the, the second half of this question is about the, the boxes in particular, it's not a, a trivial expense to like build this climate-controlled box that's rigged up to alert first responders. How prevalent are those boxes within a state? Like, where in the state are they? Are they available? You know, everywhere or just in 
more densely populated cities or, or what does that look like? So the boxes themselves are much less common. Okay. So basically these are, are built into a building. So <laughs> they're very expensive to build the climate controlled right. box, but then also they need to be put into a building. So a building has to be cut open basically like yeah. the brick has to be cut, you know? So, so these are much okay. less common. I know Indiana, for example, is sort of a leader in installing these baby boxes throughout the state, but this is not still a, a very common, these, these tend to attract more media attention, mm -hmm. but they're very uncommonly used relative to the alternative, which is to just uh, sort of either leave a baby at a site or to hand a baby over to a person who's at one of these locations. Mm -hmm. The sites themselves are quite prevalent uh, because they're commonly found in community locations. So for example, we're talking about hospitals, fire stations, police stations. Some states right. include churches and other healthcare facilities. Um, and when I began this project, I started seeing the safe haven sign everywhere. Mm -hmm. And hospitals tend to be the most common place to relinquish an infant, but more yeah, media sense. attention is actually given to babies who are surrendered at fire and police stations. So that's how most people are more familiar with these policies. Yeah. But yeah, more more babies are actually relinquished at hospitals. That that does make sense. And and it makes sense that the boxes are less common than these other, you know, methods for relinquishment. So on the policy side, it is fairly, I mean, well, it is ubiquitous. All 50 states now have laws in place that protect parents' rights to do this. But I imagine it's still a pretty contentious debate, maybe especially with the boxes. I can imagine that the idea of the box is repugnant, maybe in, in different ways, as well as generally the idea of, of relinquishing a child. So how contentious is a policy debate? And can you summarize what the proponents and critics' arguments are in that debate for us? Yes, yeah, definitely a contentious debate. So legally relinquishing an infant to one of these sites is different than abandoning an infant. And this is one of the arguments that proponents of these policies make, that Infants and parents in this situation have basically reached rock bottom in terms of their choices, and it's better to put a baby in a baby box at a fire station than abandon the baby in a place where they're unlikely to survive. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, critics argue, look, this is an easy way out of parenting, and it's going to encourage the relinquishment of babies who wouldn't have been abandoned. And who knows if being a safe haven baby, quote unquote, is better than the alternative. I mean, probably it is if the parent thought that this was the best option for, for either them or the child, right? But we can't actually observe the counterfactuals. So that's, that's one of the arguments of the critic side. Right. And I guess, you know, right along the lines of that debate, the effect of this policy could be good, could be bad, right? It, it's good if it is improving these babies' living situation, health, etc. But you could argue that it, it's bad if it creates, you know, what we might think of as unnecessary relinquishments or something like that. And your paper is, is so important because you're going to provide some pretty clear and objective empirical evidence on the impacts 
of safe haven laws and, and safe haven sites, right? That's right. So the effect is unclear. So on one hand, safe havens reduce the cost of basically resigning from parental responsibilities by mm-hmm. avoiding costs like legal punishment to the parent and suffering on part of the baby. So this process is now logistically easier. This line of thinking suggests we would see more infants legally relinquished to safe haven sites and probably fewer infant deaths. Yeah. However, safe havens also change the incentives before birth. And so now, instead of obtaining an abortion or using other forms of birth control, a child might be born who would not have been born without these laws. Mm -hmm. And that child may or may not be at a greater risk for negative outcomes like infant death. But it's also possible that nothing happens. Right. <laughs> For example, the existence of an infant safe haven isn't going to change the prevalence of postpartum psychosis and other mental illnesses that lead to infant mortality. Uh, and yeah. so basically there are these you know, different groups of people for whom these policies may matter, people mm-hmm. who are going to basically kill their infants or illegally abandon an infant with the intention of the child dying, those who abandon an infant in a safer, more discoverable location with the intention of the baby surviving. Yeah. And those who wouldn't have had a baby, but now do because of the option to use the infant safe haven. And so the goal of this study is to basically disentangle all of these different possibilities. Right. It's striking that you say there might be some parents who abandon a child with the objective of the child dying. I guess I hadn't even quite gone that that far in thinking through that some people might actually do that, but some are uh, abandoning them outside of this system, maybe still hoping that, that someone finds the child. Do we know anything about I mean, it's, I guess it's impossible to know all the, the motives and, and things that are going through someone's head in, in this kind of crisis situation. But do we have any sense of, you know, how prevalent those two different approaches are? So what we know based on data is that approximately 60% of infants who are found abandoned are deceased. Okay. So... Most of these babies that are abandoned, again, that are found, right? There are right. there are certainly some babies that are abandoned that are, are never even discovered. It is, I think, more – I want to think that it's more likely that parents want their babies to survive, but the right. data don't actually help <laughs> – help prove that you know i mean these babies most most of them are found deceased yeah and so and the ones that aren't even found are also deceased and so that number might actually be elevated so certainly there are babies that are abandoned in places where the parents want the baby to be found right by somebody else and and the intention is is for the baby to survive but the best data that we have And it's not great, right? It's, you know, when we are relying on data, that's like, is the baby found when the parents didn't actually want the baby to be found? So it's, it's hard to calculate that. But the the best data that we do have suggests that between, you know, 50 and 60% of infants that are abandoned are found deceased. Again, abandoned outside of the, of the safe haven system. That's right. Yes. Abandoned, not relinquished to a safe haven site. That's correct. Yeah. 
Okay. And and we'll come back to this, I think, later on. But it's also talking about intentions is a little difficult, especially if this is happening in a moment of crisis. People might not be thinking clearly. They might be scared and confused and a lot might be going on. So we'll come back to that, uh, I think, you know, as we try to work through your results. But before we get to the uh, main results, the other thing I think that's worth talking about now is just some more background data on how many of these legal relinquishments are there in a given year. You know, how do we keep track of that? Is it possible to keep track of that? How frequently are safe haven laws used by parents um, and things like that? Yeah, it seems like there would be a straightforward answer <laughs> to this question. Yeah, uh, like someone is most certainly tracking the number of children relinquished to safe haven sites, right? Right. Uh, but it turns out actually that's rare. <laughs> okay. So conventional data sets don't really facilitate this either, since no birth certificates or health information or other information is required mm-hmm. to legally relinquish an infant. That's the anonymous piece about it. Um, so there's an organization out of Chicago that has tried to track media reports of infants relinquished. Um, But this misses a lot of babies who are relinquished at hospitals without a whole lot of fanfare. Yeah. So California is one of only a handful of states that tracks the number of infants showing up at safe haven sites. Okay. And about a decade after their policy went into effect, their numbers leveled out at about 70 infants per year. So if this number is representative of the country, then that would suggest about, you know, 575 to 600 infants are relinquished to these sites annually. Okay. Do we have an idea of roughly how many births there are in a given year? I mean, I guess I'm getting at 570 on the one hand, that's a lot. But on the other hand, that's a tiny fraction of, of total births, I would imagine. Yeah. So it's something like three and a half million births. Okay. So like a really minuscule fraction of, of oh, yes, total births. Yes. This is rare in a statistical sense. Yes. But still, this is still 500 infinites, which is not sort of trivially small, I guess. That's right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, especially when you think about, and we'll get to this later, but you know, advocates would say if even one life was saved. Right. It, it's worth it. Then these policies are worth sure. it. Sure. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that, but I would like to, but there are costs right, to right, these, right. these policies too. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, you know, when we think then about hundreds of infants, then the calculation is different. Right. And again, the intention of these laws in all their different versions is to, in the extreme case, save lives and on a less extreme margin, avoid maltreatment early in a child's life. What exactly do we mean by maltreatment there? And why is it so important to eliminate maltreatment and provide the best health care safety early in a child's life early on? Yeah. So the specific intention of these policies was originally to avoid infant fatalities. Right. So it's actually even more clear why we might want to avoid that. And so safe haven sites, you know, we're supposed to basically present an alternative for mothers who abandoned their babies in places with a high likelihood of dying, like a dumpster, mm-hmm. which is a tragic and horrific thing to think about. Right. But these policies don't prevent people from relinquishing infants for whom this would not have happened. Right. And so in some sense, it's also trying to avoid 
the sort of less severe forms of maltreatment, I guess. And once you go down that direction, I guess that's where critics of the policy might feel more strongly. I don't think that was an explicit goal of the policies. Oh, okay. Um, But it's something we could measure. But it's something we could try to measure. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So at this time period, 1999 being the first policy enactment date, the data on child maltreatment aren't quite as solid as they are now. Mm -hmm. They were basically just getting up and started in the early 2000s. And furthermore, if we were to try to measure something like infant maltreatment as measured through like maltreatment reports, for example, we'd be basically looking for a needle in the haystack. Yeah. Infant maltreatment reports to child protective services agencies are very common, Mm -hmm. relatively speaking. And abandonment, as we've already mentioned, is not. So (laughs) at one point in this project, I I tried to go down that pathway as well, but the data aren't quite as reliable early on in the study time period. And also it's very noisy what we're trying to detect Mm -hmm. within a much more common phenomenon. Right. And so speaking of the data, your analysis is going to exploit the fact that different states adopted their safe haven laws at different times. They introduced these boxes at different times. And you're basically going to compare birth outcomes across states that didn't have the laws, as well as within a state looking at at changes in these outcomes before and after the law was passed. So very much a a difference in difference type design, which we just saw last week when when we looked at the effects of the Dobbs decision on abortion access which has some some similarities uh, here too. So having said that, that's your basic design. What are the actual outcomes that are the focus of your study? So when a baby is relinquished to a safe haven site, they become wards of the state. So in other words, the first responder provides medical attention to the infant mm-hmm. and the infant enters the foster care system. So although most states don't specifically track safe haven relinquishments, they do track entrance into the foster care system. And many states also track the reason for entry. Okay. So I look at children six months of age or younger who entered the foster care system because the parent assigned the physical and legal custody of the child to the child welfare agency or left the child with others, including at a safe haven site. Mm. And since the intention of these policies is to reduce infant fatalities, I also focus on infant mortality. And specifically, I'm looking at infant deaths due to what I refer to as maltreatment-related causes. So these would include causes due to neglect, abandonment, assault, or homicide. Okay. And and neglect would include things like not having proper food or or medical care or things like that. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And when we're talking about infants here, especially very, very young infants, these are severe causes. Right. Right. Okay. So where do you obtain that type of data? Is Is it just from death records or... Yep. So the foster care data come from the adoption and foster care analysis and reporting system. So this is 
the acronym is AFGARS, and the deaths data come from the infant death certificate data from the vital statistics system. Okay. And, and those are both national databases. They are, though there are some uh, nuances with the AFGARS, especially in the early years, which are important for this study because the early years overlap with when these policies were were implemented. So the AFGARS analysis doesn't actually include all 50 states, but it includes most states. Okay. And, and so what do you find? What, what are the main effects of these laws on, I guess, f- start with the foster care results first? Yeah, there are. So there are two main findings. The first is that safe haven laws significantly increase infant entrance into the foster care system due to relinquishment. Okay. And this effect grows over time from about a 30% increase in year one to a 95% increase after five years. Just because these laws become better known? That's one guess. Um, I don't think it's clear. Definitely not clear just from the data, from these data at least. That would be my guess. Okay. But the findings on infant deaths are are much more nuanced. Okay. So we see suggestive evidence of a reduction in maltreatment-related infant deaths by about 60% in that first year. But that effect phase over time. So this is quite different from the foster care entrance findings, which grew over time. So they don't exactly offset each other. That's right. So these, <laughs> so, so first they sound like really big effects, right? right. You know, 30%, 95%, 60%. But these are off of a really small base. Right. So these effects translate into about 1,800 more infants entering foster care after five years. Okay. And about 35 infants whose lives were saved. So this this is about 2% of babies legally surrendered mm-hmm. would have died during early infanthood in the absence of safe haven laws. Right. So the fact that those absolute numbers are, are so different from one another suggests that it's not a one-to-one, you know, a life was saved and that child's now in foster care. Yeah, not even close. Not even close to a one-to-one, right? In fact, most infants that are relinquished would not have died according to these results. So coming back to the critics' argument, that's kind of exactly what they're saying, which is that some of these might be more marginal placements. Is that fair to say? Yes, but we don't know what would have happened to the relinquished infants had they not been relinquished. Sure. So we do know that they wouldn't have died, so so that's good. Right. But possibly they wouldn't have been born. Okay. Or possibly they wouldn't have grown up in a home environment that was fine. Right. So proponents of safe havens would say, hey, this is great. Perhaps pregnancies are not being terminated when they would have been without safe havens. Mm -hmm. But to your point, critics would say that this is bad. These policies are incentivizing either births that wouldn't have happened or babies entering the foster care system when they would have stayed out of the system and at least they wouldn't have died. Now, who knows what their lives would look like, but they wouldn't have died. Right. Do you have any idea of of how the critic and proponent camps in this debate align with the pro-choice, pro-life debate around abortion? Or is is there a clear alignment there? There is a clear alignment. So proponents of safe havens tend to be 
more conservative. They tend to be more anti-abortion. Okay. And critics of these policies tend to be more liberal and progressive and more pro-choice. Okay. I can see why that is, but I also, if you told me that it was the other way around, I think you could also explain that as well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So uh, so that's part of the reason why these policies were so popular, I would say, um, because both sides of the political spectrum were happy with these policies, right? So okay. conservative liked these policies because they were going to save babies' lives and not cost anything. Yeah. While liberals tended to like these policies because they were not punitive. Right. And this is in part why these policies went through state legislatures very quickly. Mm-hmm. That being said, they did tend to be led more by conservative legislatures. Yeah. So it it is interesting. The pro-life position views this as an alternative. That's right. And it's it's actually become much more, it's been illuminated because of the Dobbs decision. Right. So it was actually mentioned in the Supreme Court case by Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett that safe haven laws basically allow a pregnant person to go through pregnancy and then terminate the parental rights at the conclusion of the pregnancy. Right. And so these actually became very important in this debate, yeah. despite not really receiving too much attention for the past two decades. Right. So this podcast is going to be posted after our podcast about the Dobbs decision and the effect on uh, abortion access. So if you're listening to this and haven't listened to the previous episode, you might want to go back to that. You know, I guess at the end of the day, it's a normative question. You know, is this good or bad? And like you said, it's really hard to know the counterfactual of what type of life, what type of upbringing a relinquished child would have had with their birth parents, you know, had they not been relinquished. I guess the thing I'm left with is the discrepancy is startling in terms of just the absolute numbers of, you know, over a thousand, there's a, more than a thousand child increase in foster care placements. Did you find that striking or is that kind of what you expected? Or I did not know what to expect with the infant death. I expected to see increases in foster care entrance. Right. I did not know what would happen with infant death. And I think it is because there are so many possibilities for people who are in this situation and I do think it's striking, but I I don't know whether this is good or bad, you know, and so I don't have a very clear answer for that. But I do think it's really important that we now know that actually most of these babies that are relinquished to these safe haven sites, their alternative was not that they were going to die. So it's also possible that a different way to potentially spin this is that you know, there are still babies that are being abandoned and that are still dying. Yeah. And so one way to think about and that safe haven sites didn't save. And like, this is such a straightforward and simplistic policy. Mm-hmm. How How is it not capturing everyone, you know, yeah. who would be in this situation? So, so that's another question that I still am maybe a bit uncomfortable with. Yeah. 
is it as simple as saying that there's like real mental health crises and just irrational decisions that are leading to that? I do think that's, you know, we, we have issues and challenges with mental health care access in the United States mm-hmm. in many places. But, you know, I also just want to clarify and sort of caution that it, this is still a very rare phenomenon. Yeah, so yeah, I don't yeah, want to yeah. be alarmist or anything right, right, in this right. um, regard. So, but it's a very, you know, it really pulls at the emotional and heart strings of, yeah. of people. Yeah. And even when I'm wearing my researcher hat, it's hard to think about these kinds of questions. But it's also like when you look at the data and you see the data and the evidence, this is not that common mm-hmm. still, you know, and so so that's a good that's a good thing, right? So if you're if you're looking for like the positive yeah. uh, view here, this is still a pretty rare phenomenon. Kind of a, a non sequitur, but are these laws here to stay? Is there any discussion about making it more difficult to relinquish a child or anything like that? I think it's the opposite, actually. If anything, making it easier, safer has been to make it easier. Yeah, exactly. So, for example, the baby boxes. I mean, that's a new thing. Yeah. uh, Within the last, you know, five to ten years. And again, that's because of the bipartisan support. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I'd also just, you know, it just like sounds like the right thing to do, right? Like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It just seems like a common sense type of policy, and some people would argue that that's part of the problem, right? That like, it makes it so easy. Right. And so you can basically relinquish your parental responsibilities without, without really any cost. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the point of these policies. Right. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky line, but, but that has been the trend in the last decade or so is to, to make it easier. So for example, usually you have to relinquish an infant within a certain time frame. Yeah. Um, Again, these are not binding in any way, mm-hmm. <laughs> but states are have been more likely to increase the length of time that you can relinquish an infant. For example, um, making making these a bit more generous in terms of you know the time frame you're allowed, but again, not binding. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. but like from a from a policy creation perspective, right? The idea is to make it even easier or more applicable to more people. Uh, additionally, the the baby boxes, these are much more technologically advanced than simply leaving a baby in a basket or handing a baby over to someone. Right. And then the more recent bill that I mentioned, for example, out of Florida, that basically allows someone, you don't even have to go to the site anymore. Someone can come to you and, and pick up an infant. Yeah. So these have all been attempts to basically increase the effectiveness of these policies. Right. Or maybe a more accurate way to say it is to make it easier to use these policies. And I imagine at, at some hospitals, for a mother who gives birth in a hospital, that they might even explain some of this there and, and advertise this there. Like you, like you said, it, it's one thing to see the signs on the wall, but like in the discharge packet, there might even be information about it there, I'd imagine. Yeah, I, I think that has been something that places have been doing. I don't know how widespread that is, mm-hmm. but I do know that many labor and delivery wards of hospitals do have the safe haven site sign right. hanging there. Right. But a, a, an even more active recruitment, if you will, are, you know, these conversations and the pamphlets and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, we talked about the, the main results that you, you have data on infant deaths as well as infant placements and childcare um, associated with relinquishment. Is there any way even roughly to, to kind of approximate or try to quantify the benefits of the policy, whether we think um, obviously of, of the lives saved, but also reducing maltreatment, reducing the odds of growing up in a toxic or harmful environment or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, we can do our best. Uh, the, so the main benefits here are that some babies' lives have been spared as a result of these policies. Yeah. And, and that's a really big deal. Um, so using the value of statistical life estimates, those benefits alone are about $304 million. And as you mentioned, that's certainly an underestimate since there are infants whose alternative was not death. Right. And so for those relinquished infants, there are possibly savings in terms of, you know, child welfare agencies, uh, government assistance, health care or incarceration mm -hmm. that might have occurred within those households had they not been relinquished. Yeah. But it's nearly impossible to actually quantify sure. that. But the, the bottom line is even without those benefits, these policies are extremely cost effective because on the cost side, it's basically the medical and foster care expenses. And if you remember that hospitals are the most right. commonly used safe haven site, it's very obvious then that these costs are quite low. It's not zero. It's it's not nothing, but right. but it is low. Okay, so we talked about obviously the benefits of saving lives are enormous and relative to the costs of accepting relinquishments at the hospital costs are pretty low. Another parallel research literature policy issue is foster care itself, again, because that's where a lot of these relinquished children go. What do we know about growing up in the foster care system in terms of longer run child outcomes or the likelihood of, of being legally adopted uh, like the heartwarming story about the firefighter and his wife that I mentioned um, at the outset of the podcast. So yes, most of these children do end up in the foster care system. Really only a handful of stories make the news about the adoptions of safe haven site babies. And so some of the most recent research on the foster care system suggests that at the margin, foster care is better for kids than their alternative households. But this, I think, is a really important point that the focus... I think then should should be on the alternative households. Like how do we make the alternative households better so that kids don't have to go into the foster care system? And I, I don't think we know the answer to that right now. Yeah, that's fair. Again, these are all really difficult uh, questions to grapple with and, and think about. And the, you know, the, the choice of relinquishing your child is a choice that you know, in a perfect world, no one w would have to make. I can't even imagine making that decision, um, which raises the question of, do parents ever do this in the midst of a, you know, what turned out to be more of a momentary crisis and then regret the relinquishment decision? Do they have any recourse if they change their mind later? So some states do allow parents to basically reclaim their surrendered babies, but this is not common. Okay. Um, so, so they usually have a certain amount of time to do so, and they usually need to undergo genetic testing. 
So in terms of data that we have, California, which again is one of the few places that tracks any of this information, Mm -hmm. they found that roughly three and a half percent of infants safely surrendered were reclaimed by their parents. Okay. And the the reclaim went through and, and they were reunited. To my knowledge, that's how I interpret. Yeah. And that's how I interpret those data. Okay. And I guess related to this issue and just thinking more about the decision-making process of the mother or the parents that are that are going through this. You mentioned postpartum psychosis or, or postpartum depression and, and things like that can certainly lead to a crisis and also cloud judgment. And I suspect I know the answer since it's anonymous, we, we don't really know. But do we have any sense of of what are the underlying factors that that lead to these decisions, these relinquishments? So there is some research suggesting that mothers who actually use safe haven sites tend to be a bit older and they have multiple children and relinquish their infants primarily due to financial constraints. Okay. Where I think mothers suffering from postpartum psychosis or other mental illnesses are unlikely or unable to effectively use safe haven sites due to their mental illnesses. Ah, okay. It's a little surprising that monetary or financial reasons are are a a motivating factor. Is that a pretty credible result or are we sort of extrapolating? So this particular finding here is based on a dissertation that basically asked mothers when they called a hotline um, some questions And then, you know, sort of like guided them through the process of using a safe haven site. I see. So I think it's a pretty credible finding, but it is just one study. So I wouldn't hang my hat on that. Okay. Now, that being said, the finding about sort of having an effect on a bit older mothers, when I looked at the death certificate data for for deaths that could be linked to a birth certificate, um, which is a select sample. Mm -hmm. But these, uh, it did tend to be older mothers. Um, So I do think that is also a credible, but again, you know, that's potentially elevated because in that particular analysis, Mm -hmm. which I don't think ended up actually in the paper, but in that analysis, looking just at the subset of infant deaths who could be linked to birth certificates as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I really applaud your effort and uh, you know thoughtful and objective approach to this very, frankly, difficult topic to, to think about and, and talk about. We, we talked a lot about the fundamental trade-off at play in uh, making these policies more lenient or stricter. To try to conclude and move forward you know, in in the best possible way. What is your general take on the question of, you know, are are these policies pretty good? Should we make it even easier? Should we make it a little harder to relinquish a child? Do we have the right number of these safe haven sites and specifically those, the, the new technologically advanced boxes? You know, anything else you might change about the policy or, or how the program operates? Any more normative thoughts on any of that you'd like to share? As with many policy issues that we face, I think it's a delicate balance between providing a safety net for people in desperate need mm-hmm. without 
incentivizing undesirable social behavior. Right. So for example, an advocate might say, look, these policies save babies' lives. We should advertise them like crazy. Mm -hmm. But the evidence shows that a lot of babies are being relinquished who wouldn't have died. And I'm not sure we really want that as a society either. Right. I mean, maybe we do, but that's a a tough question. Um, So I'm I'm not sure I have a satisfying answer for this because I I don't know what the right number is. I, I don't know if we should be uh, necessarily making it easier already we're seeing that babies are being relinquished who wouldn't have who wouldn't have died but you know maybe that is the right thing right maybe that's a better alternative than than the rest mm-hmm. uh, than you know the other alternative so and ideally we have other measures of you know some sort of like childhood harm mm-hmm. infant harm in particular that we can use but to my knowledge, that just doesn't exist. So I think it's unfortunately going to remain sort of an open question. Yeah. And related to that, is there any advice you have for the the different stakeholders here, be they policymakers or advocates in either direction for these types of policies or any particular things that, you know, your study finds that you really think they should pay extra attention to or just general advice for moving forward? I do think that this study illuminates something that was maybe previously hidden. So these these policies were intended to reduce the number of infants abandoned at birth. Right. Uh, but the study shows that many infants have been relinquished when their alternative was not death. And so I think this evidence reveals that there's either a lack of social services available when parents feel unable or unwilling to care for their children, mm-hmm. or that some mothers prefer the ease of relinquishment. So I think what's important here is that instead of thinking about safe haven policies as basically correcting a really narrow issue like the killing of an infant or the abandonment of an infant, I I actually think it illuminates a larger scale social issue. Like what do parents who feel that their best option is to relinquish their babies at safe haven sites, what do they need? How can society and and governments best support them so that this is not the best alternative? Right. Yeah, I think I think that's a really uh, important point and and a good point to end on. I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with us today. Our guest today has been Dr. Lindsay Bullinger, Assistant Professor in the School of Public Policy at Georgia Tech. Uh, Thank you again for joining us on the Closer Look Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.